we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there was no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, This morning I told a story of a car accident that I was in, and Um, about my immediate reaction after that traumatic, overwhelming event that suddenly crashed in when I wasn't expecting it. The question just arose in my mind, what just happened? Now, that's a question that happens, I think, a lot whenever something big sort of hits us, blindsides us out of the blue. What just happened? What was that? But it's a question that arises in other cases, too, not just the traumatic, overwhelming moments of life, Sometimes that's a question that can actually arise when things are actually going surprisingly well. What, what just happened? How did this all come together? You may know a story about this in Daniel chapter 4, where we read about the pride of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, where at the height of his power, he, he goes out and looks upon his empire. And as he's reflecting upon the greatness and glory of his empire, it's as if he asked, 
How did I get here? What happened that all of this should come together for me? And here's the answer that he gave to himself. He says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? In other words, if the question was what just happened, the answer is I happened. That's the question or the answer he's giving there. Now, if you know the story, God cursed the pride of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was reduced where his intelligence was... uh, set down among the animals, where he went among the animals, where he was wet with the dew and his hair grew long and his fingernails grew into claw-like things until the time of judgment passed and the Lord restored his reason. And when King Nebuchadnezzar came out of this time, he gave glory to the God of Israel. And what that story tells us is that even the king of Babylon, even pagan kings are dependent upon the common grace of the God of Israel for everything that they received. I think one of the most pervasive questions that we wrestle with in our pride is to think along the same lines as Nebuchadnezzar when we find success. Something good happens and we say, what happened? We might not say it, at least not out loud. I happened. I am the reason for this. I am the cause of my success. If something bad happens, well, that's clearly someone else's fault. But when good things happen, I am the one. This is for my majesty and my glory. Well, in our story tonight, we're we're dealing with the first event of Saul's kingship. And by the grace of God, what's going to happen here is a great success. But we are going to see a wrong response to this. Now, actually, it won't entirely be the wrong response of Saul, at least not outwardly. We don't know what he's thinking, but we know what he says outwardly. The question here is rather the conclusion that the people are drawing. What just happened here, what we're going to see is the people are looking too much to the glory of their king. What happened? Our king happened. Our big idea against this comes from Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so as we look at this passage, uh, three parts to this sermon. Uh, First of all, kingdom reproach. Kingdom reproach. Then second, kingdom rescue. Kingdom rescue. And then third, kingdom renewal. Kingdom renewal. So first, kingdom reproach in verses 1 through 3. We we read about Nahash the Ammonite going up and besieging a town called Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead was east of the Jordan. Most of the land of Canaan was west of the Jordan River. And so because Jabesh-Gilead was separated by uh, the Jordan River from the rest of Israel, it was vulnerable to attacks from other nations. And a lot of the other nations, if you, if you open up to the back of your Bible, you may have a map and you can see where all of the empires, uh, Moab and uh, the Ammonites and Edom, they're all kind of over there hovered around. And, and, and they caused a lot of problems for the people on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The Ammonites, you may remember, were the descendants of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. So they were cousins to some degree of the Israelites. However, they didn't get along. This small nation at this point in history had become quite powerful. And Nahash the Ammonite is here besieging an entire Israelite city. 
And when the people of Jabesh Gilead ask for a treaty, ask to cut a covenant so that maybe this problem can go away, Nahash is unyielding in his demands. He says, here's my condition that you have, every one of you have your right eye gouged out. Um, the historian Josephus, who lived just a little bit after the time of Jesus, an Israelite historian, uh, commenting on this passage, said the problem with gouging out the right eye is that the way that the ancient warriors would have held their shields, uh, the shield would have covered the left eye, so if your left eye is covered but your right eye is gouged out, you can't see a thing. You would have been useless on the battlefield in the way that they would have fought at the time. However, even those who are useless on the battlefield would still make good slaves, able to do common labor. So that's what he was doing. He was taking away any of their force, any of their might, and he was rather reducing them to the position of his slaves. But there's a major problem here. As commentators point out, there's a real threat that a part of the Israelite inheritance, we just sang about it, the land of Sihon and Og, and we sang about that in Psalm 135 that we just sang, that was given to the Israelites, the first part of their inheritance uh, before they crossed over into the land of Canaan proper. Uh, this could be lost permanently. If Nahash has his way, this could be lost permanently. Now notice that it's not just this particular area that Nahash has his eyes on. Um, he says in verse 2 that he wants to bring disgrace on all Israel. One commentator suggests, and I think probably he's right, that he's wanting to draw all Israel to him. Uh, and Jabesh Gilead was something of the bait to draw the rest of Israel to him. He must have felt pretty good about himself, and of course, who could blame him? This was still the period of the judges. We've sort of crossed into the time of the kings, and yet there's still a judge alive, Samuel. This is still the period of the judges, and the Israelites were regularly getting wiped out. Imagine living in a world where uh, you kept losing the battles that you were fighting. Nebraska fans know something of this. But this is a place where he thought that he could draw them into battle and gain a great victory and that he could bring disgrace not just on this one town but on the entire nation and maybe gain a larger part of the territory for the Ammonites. Now again, it's very important to remember this is the days of the judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, you know that this story sounds awfully familiar. Almost every passage in the book of Judges starts with something just like this, where the Israelites are in dire trouble because they are facing oppression from the nations around them, and it usually comes after some length of disobedience to the Lord. They're in the middle of this, in the midst of this. But the question they had to be asking themselves is, wasn't all of this supposed to go away once Israel had a king? It's almost as if they were thinking to themselves, if only we had a king... Well, then this wouldn't happen anymore. The problems we had when we just were led by judges whenever and wherever they might arise, if only we had a king, all of this would go well for us. And yet here they are in exactly the same predicament. I think in life we're so often plagued by the lie of if only. When we're young, we say, if only I were done with school. When we get older, we say, if only I could go back to school. When we're young, we say, if only I were married. Then maybe you get into marriage and you realize it's not quite what you thought. And you say, some people say, if only I could be single again. Some people say, if only I could have a better marriage. Or if I could be married to a different person. 
Early on, you say, if only I had children. Then later on, you say, if only my children were different. If only my children weren't so difficult. Earlier on, you say, if only I could get that promotion. Then you get the promotion. And you say, if only I still had that job where I didn't have as much responsibility. That was the good life. When you're young, you say, if only I could get older. And when you get old, you say, if only I could be young again. What we think will save us it does not do the trick that we think it will for us. Israel had said, if only we would have a king. But the question that's underneath this is much more important. Was their lack of king the real problem? Was that what was standing between them and security in their nation? Was getting a king the real solution? And that's really what's in view in this passage and the surrounding passage, both before and also in the next passage that we'll look at in a few weeks, Lord willing. The kingdom has already come under reproach immediately. It's put under threat, just like when Israel was ruled by judges. So the question really is, what difference is this king, King Saul, going to actually make? So this brings us to our second section, kingdom rescue. In 1 Samuel 11, verse 4. Now, what's so interesting here in verse 4 is that the narrator just casually drops a grenade of information into our midst. Just sort of says it and moves on, imagines that we don't know what he's talking about. But in verse 4, we read, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. This is the first time that we hear what town Saul is from. Now earlier, we knew in chapter 9, verse 21, Saul had said, that he was from the humblest clan in Israel. Why should he be king when he's from the humblest clan of Israel? But now we know why. It's because he is from Gibeah. Now, let's catch everyone up. If you don't remember the story of the book of Judges, in Judges 19, Gibeah is the site of one of the most horrifying events in Israel's history. And this is Saul's hometown. Uh, one scholar, Robert Polzin, wrote a lengthy article that really tried to connect a lot of the uh, parallels, all the commentaries cited. I'm, I'm using it here um, for a lot of the background that I'm going to be talking about here. So Robert Polzin gets the credit here. But let me fill you in on what happened in Judges 19 and show you why it's so relevant for this particular passage. Um, Judges 19, if you read about that story, it's a story of a Levite, a man who was pursuing his unfaithful concubine. She had fled from him. Well, he pursued her all the way to Bethlehem. And he stayed with her father. She had escaped back to her father. And he ate and drank with her father until it was very late at night. They left very late at night. Now, that was a very foolish thing. These were dangerous times. You don't leave in the middle of the night. But that's exactly what they did. Now, to be safe, to be wise, they chose not to go into and spend the night in the city of Jerusalem. Now, that sounds like a good thing to us, but we should remember at that point in time, the Israelites did not possess the city of Jerusalem. It's not until David comes to the throne, which is not even in 1 Samuel, won't be until 2 Samuel, that eventually David leads a clan of people and they capture Jerusalem. It becomes the city of David. So they avoid the city of, that was possessed by the Jebusites at the time, Jerusalem, and instead they went to an Israelite town, and that's this town of Gibeah. Now, this Levite and his concubine tried to stay in the town square until an old man found them and insisted that they come into his house. Now, by this time, the story should sound like what we read about in the story of Lot in Genesis 19. You remember Lot is the father of the Ammonites? 
But what immediately preceded that was Genesis 19, where the angel of the Lord went into Sodom to take Lot away and to uh, rescue him from the town because he was one of the righteous men. So this whole nation of the Ammonites actually is sort of replaying all of this story of Gebeah that's in the background here. Well, when they come into this old man's house, just like when the angels had visited Lot in the town of Sodom, the men of the city surround the house and they demand that the Levite be brought out so that the entire city can have sex with him. It's a very brutal graphic story. The Levite sends out his concubine and the people of Gibeah rape her until the morning so violently that she dies. It's a horrifying story. The next morning, the Levite goes out to leave and he callously says, get up, let's go. I'm sure he wants to get out of the city, but he barely notices that she's already dead. The story just gets worse from there, believe it or not. The Levite then takes her body, cuts it up into pieces and sends the pieces of her body all the way by messengers to the various 12 tribes. At least at that point, the people of Israel are horrified. And they gather to fight Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. Now, the way this happens at the end of Judges, Judges is a terrible story of the, the, the slow descent and spiral down of God's people into greater and greater idolatry and sin. And so by this point, at the very end of the story, things are awful. And so God sends them against each other, and thousands die on both sides of the battle. It's a crisis. It's a crisis. Men die on both sides. And when all the dust settles, the Gibeahites, they realize, are left without wives. And so there's a crisis. They need to give wives to these Gibeahites so they are not cut off from their inheritance. Uh, they've taken care of the matter, they think, but they now need to give wives to them. And so in trying to provide wives so the Gibeahites can, can sort of regroup and, and grow again as a, a city, they decide to take wives from another city who initially sent no warriors to attack Gibeah when all of this happened in the first place. And the one city who sent no one to fight was the city of Jabesh Gilead, where this story is taking place. And so they took 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead to give in marriage to the Gibeites. Now, I'm sorry if you weren't expecting such a graphic horror story tonight. This is simply the background to this story. It's in the Word of God. And the conclusion of the book of Judges is fitting. In Judges 21, verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's a real question at the end of the book of Judges. What is needed? Again, if only we had a king, then these kinds of things wouldn't be happening again. And in verse 4, we discover this is the same city that Israel's new king is from. But when we get to this verse 4, it's really remarkable. Israel has a king, but where is he? He's not governing. He's not reigning. He's farming. Now, farming is a wonderful thing to do. We're very grateful for our farmers. We need farmers. But Saul is now the king, and he's not reigning. And one of his cities is in crisis, and he's not on the job until he comes in from the fields in verse 5. 
And he's the last person to find out about this. The king of Israel is the last person to find out what has happened. Why is everyone weeping, he asks. And when he finds out and they, tells him, and they tell him, we read then in verse 6 that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard this word, these words and his anger was greatly kindled. Now again, if, you, if you've read the book of Judges, you know this is very similar to what happens in the book of Judges. Uh, for example, every time Samson is in trouble, the Spirit of God rushes upon him and he's able to get out of whatever jam he is in. But look at what Saul does. He essentially repeats the story of Gibeah in the book of Judges, although it's in a much kinder way. It's not a human body that he cuts into pieces and sends to the various ends of the territory of Israel. He takes a yoke of oxen and cuts that in pieces and sends that to the various ends of the territory of Israel. And again, it's not going to end in Jabesh Gilead being deprived, kidnapped of their young women. It's to come to the defense of this territory, Jabesh Gilead. And all the people, just like they did to attack Gibeah, all the people gather as one man to go out to battle to fight to save Jabesh Gilead. Now, when the city gets word, it's really interesting in verse 10. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. They feel, they're feeling good. They're feeling confident. Help is on the way. Rescuers are coming. Literally, they say, do to us whatever seems good in your eyes. Now, there's a couple of plays on words here. The first is that, well, their eyes were going to be gouged out. Do whatever is good in your eyes by, theoretically, if you want, gouging out our eyes. But the other echo here is back to Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You can do us what is good in, in your eyes. That's what they're offering to them. But of course, in verse 11, Saul with all Israel shows up and they have total annihilating victory over the Ammonites. This isn't a back and forth with multiple battles where thousands die on both sides. The Ammonites rather are entirely decimated. It's a major rescue here. But again, things are going well. We have to ask the question, what just happened here? What's the source of this victory. How are we to interpret it? How are we to understand it? Where does the credit go here? Very natural to think that the issue, the victory here, is won by the fact that Israel now has a king. But when we read it, this whole story is told to draw us back into the story of the judges. It's not a story about a king. This is a story about a judge. Someone who's uh, repeating the playbook from the end of the book of Judges. Someone who's acting as though he were Samson, uh, issuing a mighty victory for Israel as he's empowered by the Spirit of God. It's, it's a judge, not a king in the way this is told. How then does Israel respond? This gets us to the third section, kingdom renewal, 1 Samuel 11, verses 12 through 15. We read in verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. There's only one other place, as Robert Polzin notes, where this phrase, Bring the men that we may put them to death, is used, and that's in Judges chapter 20, verse 13. It's asking the Gibeites to bring out 
those who had done the terrible thing to the concubine to put them to death. And now they are saying this not over someone who is guilty of rape and murder, but over people who did not immediately follow after Saul's reign. It's not a murder of a concubine. It's rather the rejection of Saul. Well, Saul, he's kind of the anti-Gibeite. He doesn't do the wrong things. He does some of the things, but he sort of turns them around. Saul does pretty well in this story, and Saul absolutely dismisses this. In verse 13, he says, Not a man shall be put death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He's right. Saul, at least outwardly, we don't know what's going on in his mind, declares the truth. What just happened? The Lord happened. The Lord has given salvation in Israel. Therefore, not a man shall be put to death today. Well, then in verse 14, Samuel shows up again. We haven't seen Samuel since he anointed uh, and, and installed Saul as king over Israel, but here he is again. In verse 14, Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Now, here's where commentators see kind of a, a big question. What kingdom is Samuel talking about? What kingdom is going to be renewed? Is this Saul's kingdom, or is this the Lord's kingdom? Because if you remember in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, when the Lord first told Samuel to anoint a king for Israel, anoint Saul, we read there um, that the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The Lord was the king of Israel. It sounds like Samuel is wondering, maybe the people get it now. Maybe the people get it that the Lord is really the king that Israel needs. Maybe they recognize the hand of the Lord. The Lord has given victory this day. Let's renew his kingdom. Let's put aside this foolish plan of appointing ourselves a king like all the other nations. If only we had a king. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Now we're over that hump. Now we can put those ideas behind ourselves and recognize that the Lord indeed is king. And then what's going to happen in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 12, we'll peek ahead to verses 11 and 12 where Samuel is reminding Israel of how good they had it during the days of the judges, not because of their behavior, but because of the way the Lord consistently showed up to rescue them. 1 Samuel 12, verse 11 says, And the Lord sent Jerubal, one of the judges, and Barak, another judge, and Jephthah, another judge, and Samuel, another judge. And he delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. The Lord protected you when you had just the judges over you. But then in the next verse, he goes back to the story from verse 11, and listen to what he says. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord, your God, was your king. Now remember, he's, just, he's not talking about something that happened before Saul became a king. He's talking about this particular story. When Samuel wanted to restore the kingdom for Israel, it seems by what he's saying here, the people said, no, but a king shall reign over us. The Lord was their king. His was the kingdom who should be restored. And yet they insisted, no, we think we've figured out what's going to work. This king thing works pretty well for us. What happened yesterday? Our king 
happened. Samuel is interpreting this battle with Nahash as a clash of kings and clash of kingships, Saul versus Yahweh. The point of the story is that the Lord had indeed delivered his people during the period of the judges, and he did again here in almost exactly the same way, but the people misinterpreted the reason for the victory. It wasn't the new presence of a king. Rather, the victory has always been about the presence of the Lord because our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Yet in verse 15, chapter 11, verse 15, we read, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, you wonder that phrase, before the Lord, is that in front of the Lord, or is it the idea in the presence of the Lord? It's written to kind of straddle that fence. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, later we are going to see the way Saul sins, and Saul does sin in important, grievous ways. But before we see much of Saul's sin, we are seeing here the entrenched rebellion of the people against the Lord. They are looking for a king. They are looking to Saul rather than to the Lord for salvation. Have you ever taken any logic, any philosophy kind of courses? You might know of something called uh, a logical fallacy called correlation and causation, or about correlation and causation, namely that correlation does not equal causation. It's the idea that two things can happen at the same time, but you have to be careful about saying that one of those events caused the other event. One of the common ways, common illustrations of this is that ice cream sales rise during hot weather times of year. It is a logical fallacy to say that ice cream sales cause hot weather, right? It's the other way around. If you get the causation wrong, you can't just say both things happen, therefore one caused the other. You have to understand what is causing which. We hear the Holy Spirit has given victory during the reign of Saul, but it's not Saul's kingship that is the cause of this victory. The opposite is true. Don't confuse correlation with causation. The problem we are seeing here is that the people do not understand their true problem. They don't understand the sin here. And therefore, because they don't understand their rebellion against the kingship of the Lord, they also don't understand the true solution, namely repentance and looking to the Lord in faith. The application to this passage then is this. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. What we are seeing here underscores that the Lord alone can save his people as, his, as their king. Human measures cannot ultimately save. Human leaders cannot ultimately save. Human movements cannot ultimately save. Even a king like the other nations cannot ultimately save, even if he does in this passage, because it was never about Saul. It was never Saul's resources, Saul's strength, Saul's ingenuity. This is just a man from Gibeah, after all. Even when salvation is connected to these, we have to be careful that we don't say that these were the cause of the salvation that came. They're only correlated. They're not, one is not caused by the other. What the story is illustrating is really something about which Jesus Christ extends so much further than Saul in life. Jesus is the ultimate king who can bring about salvation because he is both God and man. 
if Jesus were not God, if he were a mere human being, then he would not be able to save us. One more king, no matter how powerful he may be, could not ultimately save us. But at the same time, if, if, if Jesus were not a human being anointed with the Holy Spirit, he also could not save us. We needed God himself to take upon a human nature like ours to come into this world because our enemies are not ultimately the Ammonites. Our enemies are the sin that corrupts us, the sin of which we are guilty, the sin that infects every part of our human nature. And unless we had God himself take upon every aspect of our human nature, who then went out to do battle against our biggest enemies in sin and death and the devil by going to the cross on our behalf, then we ultimately could not be saved. God saves through mediators. He does here, and he continues to save through a mediator, but that mediator is not Saul. Saul is not the source of salvation. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So is Jesus worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing? That's the great question, Revelation chapter 5. We sang it at the end of our service this morning. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole to break the seal and open the scroll? As John has asked, has asked this question, he looks around and realizes there's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who is worthy to break the scroll and it begins to weep. How is all of this going to become fixed? And then someone says, weep no more, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Jesus is worthy. Because he was slain, and by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and he made them a kingdom. Not a kingdom that rests on the faulty foundations of Saul's kingdom, but he made us a kingdom by his own blood. He wasn't a flashy, powerful king, at least he's tall, as Andrew talked about a few weeks ago. According to human standards, he had no beauty that we should desire him. And yet the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered because he is the lamb who was slain. Our help Yesterday, today, and forevermore is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. What this story is reminding us is that we can look to no human, no group of people, no human methods or thoughts or ingenuity to save. We can only look to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. To whom are you looking for your salvation tonight? Look to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this story that reminds us of that difficult, brutal story at the end of Judges, Father, we recognize just that our sin is uglier than we think it is. It runs deeper than we realize it does. It causes more problems and inhibits us in more ways than we could count. We can't get our mind around this. But just as our sin limited us, just as our sin disqualified us, just as our sin put us behind the eight ball that we inherited from Adam originally, we know that much more your grace has abounded through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so tonight we rejoice 
in your Son, our Savior, knowing that uh, he's not just someone with whom salvation is loosely correlated. He is the cause. He is the ground. He is the source, the wellspring of our salvation. I pray that we would look to him and we would rejoice as we worship him tonight. Father, if there are any who do not yet trust in Christ for salvation, I pray that you would lead them to a knowledge of Jesus for salvation tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let us stand as we uh, sing together. And uh, forgive me, can someone tell me what song and number we're in? I've left my bulletin below. What was that? 580, and that is...